A proposal for the so-called mansion tax heads for a city council vote in the week ahead. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis about news from the healthcare business beat, including how Advocate's new Illinois chief is navigating post-merger realities. Advocate has so far eliminated a number of duplicative roles in Illinois. They won't say how many, um, but I think that has in part contributed perhaps to some of this angst we're seeing from employees. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, October 31st. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. I'm joined by Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, here to talk about news from the healthcare business beat. Welcome back to the podcast, Catherine. Always a pleasure. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, let's start by talking about Advocate's new Illinois chief and how he is navigating some of the challenges ahead post-merger. So to sort of take us back and set the stage a little bit, listeners might remember that Advocate Aurora Health, which had long been the largest healthcare provider in the Chicago area, merged with Atrium Health in December, last December. And this was one of the biggest hospital mergers Illinois had seen in many years. And the combination has actually made these systems among the biggest in the country. Advocate Health, which is what they renamed themselves post-merger, is now the third largest nonprofit health system in the country. So really big. They're across six states. Atrium is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And after the deal, the combined systems headquarters moved to Charlotte as well. So the Downers Grove office that Advocate Aurora Long had is now closed. And that's an important fact in this story, just because it sort of gives you a sense of where control is for this multi-state system and sort of, you know, what the folks here locally in Illinois will be up against as they continue to provide care in several hospitals and outpatient centers in Illinois. And so that brings us to Dia Nichols, who was recently named the chief of what's called Advocate Healthcare. That just refers to the Illinois segment of this big system. And I recently interviewed him at Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge about how his new role is going, what he's got planned, and of course, some of the challenges that he's facing in this industry. Amy, you know, we've long talked about the post. COVID challenges that health systems face, right? I mean, it's everything from a labor shortage to inflation, rising the prices of drugs and supplies. And of course, now in the advocate health family, you know, Dia's sort of facing a unique challenge in that he'll be reporting to a, a corporate senior leadership team that's many, many miles away, all the way in North Carolina. 
And so let's talk about some of those headwinds that he's up against. You know, I think anytime we are looking at a merger, there's always just kind of that settle in period and, and figuring out, you know, how it all shakes out. But then there's additional kind of issues and headwinds for him. Well, let's talk about those. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, the the labor shortage. Yeah. Advocate is not unique in this area. Dia was telling me that they have about 2,000 open positions just here in Illinois. Most of them are, on, are the nursing side, which is no surprise. Uh, the nursing shortage has been substantial. But he said, you know, shortages also stem to other parts of the system. So that's, you know, physicians uh, recruiting and retaining those lower level nurses uh, like LPNs, uh, housekeepers. These people that are integral to keeping a hospital running. Some of the other challenges we discussed were, of course, the financial ones. You know, Advocate, the Illinois unit, has a really slim margin right now. Dia, you know, described the margins as razor thin, but said that puts them in a, in a camp with all their peers. Advocate Aurora, which encompasses the Illinois and Wisconsin markets, had a 1.7% operating margin during the first six months of this year, and that's only slightly better than the median of 1.4% for U.S. hospitals across the country. Um, so I think, you know, that really sort of speaks to the financial challenges here is where, you know, experts are telling me hospitals' expenses are going up, but revenue isn't quite keeping pace. So that we expect to continue to be a headwind for Advocate and its peers. And you noted in reporting that he's going on a bit of a tour to kind of listen to leadership at the various healthcare centers. What kind of timeline is that? And, and what's his plan for once that tour is complete? Or will the tour kind of inform his next move? Yeah, so Dia was telling me that he's going on what he calls a road show. Um, this will be a tour of the 11 Illinois hospitals and about 300 sites of care throughout the state. Um, I don't think he's going to all 300 uh, outpatient centers, so to speak, but definitely hitting all the hospital campuses um, and speaking with leadership and workers there. And he said that, you know, the idea is to get a good sense of what these hospitals need at any given time, uh, what the issues are, maybe what their strengths are, are there ways to cross collaborate between hospital campuses and make the entire state uh, function more effectively. He said that, you know, once this is done, he's doing this through mid-December, that will really give him a good sense of where to go from there and what to prioritize as he, you know, really settles into this new role. And you mentioned in reporting this idea of kind of some internal angst that he's maybe picked up on from workers, just about that, the process of the merger and, and moving the headquarters and all that. What is his plan to address that? So, you know, he was saying that, yes, there has been uh, what he described as internal angst about the headquarters now being in Charlotte. You know, a lot of the employees here in Illinois, they were used to headquarters being pretty close, just right in Downers Grove. And now, you know, much of that leadership, people at the top making the key decisions are far away. Advocate has so far eliminated a number of duplicative roles in Illinois. They won't say how many, um, but I think that has in part contributed perhaps to some of this angst we're seeing from employees. On the whole, Dia was telling me that the Illinois workforce has grown by about 2,400 people in the past 18 months. So, you know, even if some of these corporate duplicative roles are, are, are being reduced, it seems like the, the patient-facing um, and frontline roles are, are growing since we know that's you know where the shortages are and that's where the demand is needed. 
Dia said that no more layoffs are planned, but I, I asked him, I was like, you have this responsibility to patients in Illinois and to employees in Illinois who are all wondering what this merger means. He tried to assuage some of those fears saying, you know, a corporate location is just a location. He says that the headquarters moving is not impacting how Advocate is delivering care here in Illinois. And he says that he believes there will be more than enough resources to, you know, do what is needed for the Illinois hospitals and the communities they serve. But I was talking with uh, experts who said, you know, even if that part is true, and even if patients and employees aren't feeling dramatic effects, Dia's job becomes more complicated because he is now the person that needs to advocate for Illinois and sort of compete with resources with other regional leaders in the advocate family. Right. How many regional leaders are there in that in that group? You know, I don't have a good sense of that right now. I mean, what we do know about the Midwest is there's someone leading the Wisconsin segment. Of course, Dia's here leading the Illinois segment. And then there is a Midwest chief um, who's overseeing that as well. On the East Coast, Advocate is in about four states, and I'm not exactly sure how they have broken it up over there, but I wouldn't be surprised if they have a person sort of overseeing each state. Yeah, yeah, similar structure. Interesting. Well, I'm sure we will revisit this topic down the road for sure. While I have you here, other topics on your beat, talk to me about the Cook County Health CEO who is set to depart by the end of the year. So Israel Roca Jr., um, you know, this is a local CEO that I've talked to many times for coverage of, you know, just the hospital industry in general, but particularly safety net hospitals and some of the unique challenges they face because they are hospitals highly dependent on Medicaid. And Israel announced in recent days that he'll be leaving his position uh, on December 1st to pursue a new professional opportunity. I've tried to get additional details about where exactly he's headed and, and have yet to be successful. I'll be very curious to know if he's going to a, another role in the public sector or perhaps transitioning to the private sector. If you remember uh, Dr. Ngozi Azike, who was long the chief of IDPH, um, she sort of transferred over to the private sector when she joined Sinai Chicago as CEO. So I'll be curious to see uh, where Israel's going. But so far, an interim CEO has not yet been named for Cook County Health. We're still waiting to know, you know, who's going to take this over in the meantime, while the Cook County Board of Commissioners looks for a permanent replacement. It'll be very interesting to see kind of who gets shortlisted for that and who ends up in that role. Totally. I mean, it's a really big job, you know, because... Cook County Health, they're the third largest health system in Chicago by revenue. And, you know, they're operating the big public hospitals, Stroger and Provident Hospitals. And these typically are hospitals that, you know, are seeing the majority of the city's Medicaid patients. Um, So, you know, these are low income communities, people that really need quality health care. And, you know, just the financial realities of Medicaid reimbursements is that they are typically lower than private paying insurance patients, people with, you know, Blue Cross plans or Aetna, Cigna, these kinds of plans. You know, what that means is that it's just harder to run 
this type of hospital like Cook County Health. Uh, the margins are even thinner um, than, you know, like an advocate who we were just talking about. And, you know, like Israel's told me before, it's just they're always making tough decisions about where resources need to go, what grants they can pull on, what sort of city and state funding they can get um, to help, you know, keep providing what's really essential care to some of the most vulnerable communities in Chicago. Yeah, definitely. Well, another one. We will put a pin in that and revisit it down the road for sure. Let's get in the Wayback Machine because we talked so much over a period of time about Abbott and infant formula. There was just so much going on with that. Now there's sort of this new chapter for Abbott and their infant formula saga. Tell me what's going on there. I'll make the distinction that this new chapter is related to Abbott baby products, but this particular product isn't a formula. It is one of their probiotic products, um, you know, which is, of course, fed to babies. You could sort of think of it like a formula. But my understanding is that this is a product that you feed to sick babies when they are dealing with some kind of infection. So it's not something that typically all babies and particularly premature babies are consuming. So I'll just make that distinction. But, you know, yes, it does speak to sort of these larger issues that we've seen with Abbott ever since its Sturgis, Michigan plant was shut down after contamination concerns. And that launched a nationwide baby formula shortage, which we talked about extensively. But the latest development here is that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, you know, notified Abbott that they were essentially illegally selling what they considered an unapproved and unlicensed biological product, um, which was this probiotic product. And according to the FDA, Abbott has agreed to stop selling it. And the FDA has now begun warning hospitals um, and even other probiotic manufacturers about the dangers associated with these products, particularly for premature babies. The FDA said it's aware that some of these products used in hospital settings have contributed to invasive disease, including one infant death in 2023, and these products have been associated with more than two dozen other reported adverse events in the country since 2018. Um, so, you know, this is one that we'll be keeping an eye on. It's interesting to me that, you know, Abbott had to completely stop selling, you know, a particular product. I think that is a big deal, right? We don't often see that. Abbott did not respond to my request for comment, so unsure exactly how this is going to affect the company right now. My understanding, you know, just looking at Abbott's business largely, is that this is a pretty small line of business for them. This part, like this one particular probiotic product, um, but you know, just like the the baby formula recall, you you never know how things can spiral out of control. So we'll certainly be watching this one. I mean, the, you you make an important note here, though, that usually when we see, um, you know, the FDA stepping in, it's it's kind of a it, they've temporarily suspended sales or they've issued a recall. But the idea of like it's got to stop, it cannot be sold anymore. That seems like a pretty extreme first step. Was this just kind of the first that this came to to light publicly? Had this been ongoing, or was this just a, a kind of an unusually bold first move about it? I guess I don't know for sure what's been going on behind the scenes. 
whether maybe families, maybe doctors were complaining about this product. And now, you know, it's coming to light that, oh, this is dangerous and the FDA is asking Abbott to stop selling it. I think what is possible that we see going forward is Abbott perhaps makes tweaks to this product or, you know, finds ways to meet FDA standards and is able to bring it back onto the market. This is supposed to be a product that can be useful, right? I mean, it's marketed to treat and prevent diseases in preterm infants, such as necrotizing enterocolitis. You know, that's a really severe gastrointestinal condition um, that can be deadly. So, you know, I think that my limited knowledge of how (laughs) this product works, there's certainly, you know, a need for it. I think what we'll probably see is Abbott just come back and meet the FDA's requirements in a better way. It does, I think, raise some questions, though, given, you know, we're, what, a year out from the infant formula kind of scandal that it faced with the Sturgis, Michigan plant and all that it, and all that that, that closure triggered. Uh, it does kind of raise some questions in my mind about, you know, does Abbott have maybe some public trust to regain just in this one area that I think will be interesting to watch? Yeah, no, I totally understand. I mean, I remember, you know, during the saga, I was talking with like PR experts and sort of public reputation folks who were like, you know, this is really bad for Abbott. Just from a reputational perspective, I think the one upside or sort of silver lining for Abbott is that, you know, people are, they have children and they need these kinds of products and then their children grow up and they never need them again. And the memory is short and you forget, and you have a whole new generation of parents coming in that maybe had no idea about any of these issues. So they do have that on their side, but I definitely think that the reputation issue is something Abbott will have to grapple with for years to come. Yeah, that's an interesting point, though, right? Once your child ages out of that product, you you don't necessarily need to go back to it, for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. Always a pleasure to catch up about all the stuff happening on your beat. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Northwestern's faculty questions the university over financing to rebuild Ryan Field. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Gu. The city council is set to vote in the week ahead on a proposal to ask Chicago voters if they support raising the one-time tax on high-end property sales. Setting up a referendum campaign between advocates who say the money is needed to combat homelessness against a real estate industry arguing that it will hurt an already reeling market. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that the Committee on Committees and Rules, which is made up of the entire 50-member city council, is meeting Tuesday to vote on the so-called Bring Chicago Home Resolution. And if approved, the measure could get final approval at the Wednesday council meeting. The measure, sometimes called the mansion tax, was a key campaign promise of Mayor Brandon Johnson and has been fought for by his city council allies for at least four years. 
Lawrence noted in reporting that placing the item on Tuesday's agenda is a strong sign that Mayor Johnson and his allies believe they have the votes to approve the measure. To get the measure on the March primary ballot, the resolution has to be approved by early January. Scheduling the final vote by the city council on November 1st allows leeway for its supporters to see it approved by the deadline, even if opponents use parliamentary tactics to stall a vote. As previously reported by Cranes, the proposal was overhauled in August to do away with a plan to raise the flat tax increase on all property sales over a million dollars from 0.75 percent to 2.65 percent. Lawrence reported that instead, the new measure will create a tiered system that actually lowers the tax for sales under a million dollars to 0.6 percent and gradually increases the rate on sales above a million. The transfer tax on property sales between $1 million and $1.5 million would be set at 2%, while the transfer tax on property sales over $1.5 million would be raised to 3%, which is quadruple the current rate. Lawrence noted that while the measure is supported by Johnson and his progressive city council allies, there are moderates in the council that are skeptical it'll be effective in bringing in the money needed to support programs to mitigate homelessness because of the cyclical nature of the real estate market, potential rent hikes, and the additional tax burden it would put on downtown commercial property sales. General Motors and the United Auto Workers Union reached a tentative contract agreement on Monday, more than six weeks after the union began its strike against the Detroit Three and two days after the union expanded the walkout to a fourth GM assembly plant. Crane's sister publication Automotive News noted in reporting that GM was the last of the three automakers to agree to terms with the union, as tentative agreements stopped the strike at Ford late Wednesday and Stellantis on Saturday afternoon. The deal is subject to ratification by GM's 46,000 UAW members. The agreement comes after the UAW on Saturday evening added Local 1853 to the strike, which represents workers at GM's manufacturing complex in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And Automotive News noted that that followed an earlier strike expansion on Tuesday to include 5,000 GM workers in Arlington, Texas. And in addition to the GM workers on strike, nearly 2,500 workers at other GM plants were temporarily laid off as a result of the strike, which has created a more than $800 million impact on the company. Ford's tentative agreement with the UAW, if ratified by that company's 57,000 members, will give raises totaling 25 percent over the next four years, reinstate cost-of-living adjustments, and give top wages to new hires after three years, among other benefits. Automotive News noted that Ford said on October 26th that the strike had created a $1.3 billion impact on that company. Bloomberg reported that Stellantis agreed to a 25 percent hourly pay raise plus cost of living allowances over the more than four-year contract deal it reached with the union, matching Ford's earlier agreement, and also agreed to reopen the idled assembly plant in Belvedere. The Stellantis deal must next be approved by union leadership and then voted on by Stellantis's 43,000 union members, a process that could take weeks. Bloomberg also reported that Wells Fargo analyst Colin Langan estimated that the strike was costing Stellantis about $200 million a week in lost production once UAW members walked out of its truck plant in Sterling Heights, Michigan on October 23rd. But Crane's John Pletz also noted in reporting on the matter that Illinois is a big winner in the new contract between the UAW and Stellantis, particularly as it concerns reopening the Belvedere plant to make trucks and to build a new battery factory.
Pletz noted that the tentative deal reached on Saturday could result in more than 3,000 local jobs, more than doubling the company's recent headcount with an investment of billions of dollars, according to Governor J.B. Pritzker. Convincing Stellantis to keep making vehicles and commit to a battery plant in Illinois has been a top priority for Pritzker since his first term. Governor Pritzker told Cranes, quote, I'm thrilled with the outcome, adding it's nearly twice the investment and twice the number of jobs that we had expected. Pletz also reported, citing Governor Pritzker, that state officials had been working up proposals for various scenarios over the past two weeks. Governor Pritzker told Cranes that he learned about a week ago that both an EV factory and battery plant were on the table in the deal being worked out between Stellantis and the UAW. Specific to Belvedere, that deal hinges on ratification of the contract by UAW members as well as on the state finalizing its incentive package. Pletz also reported on Monday that Ford will invest more than $400 million in its two Chicago-area factories as part of its proposed new contract with UAW. The company will invest $400 million at its Torrance Avenue factory where it makes Explorer SUVs, according to the president of UAW Local 551, which represents about 6,000 workers at the plant. Pletz also reported that Ford said it'll also invest $30 million at its stamping plant in Chicago Heights, which employs about 1,200 workers and supplies the Torrance Avenue assembly line. Developers couldn't seem to build warehouses fast enough during the COVID-19 pandemic in order to meet demand, but their challenge now is to slow down. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the vacancy rate among industrial properties in the Chicago area rose during the past three months to nearly 5.2 percent, up from 4.6 percent midway through the year. That according to data from real estate services firm Colliers International. And it was the third straight quarter that the share of available industrial space in the market increased and marked the largest single quarter jump since the heart of the Great Recession in mid-2009. Ecker pointed out in his report that the numbers show a market on an unequivocal path towards normalcy after an era of unbridled power for industrial landlords. Companies demanded warehouse space during the public health crisis, desperate to boost their supply chains as people depended on online shopping. And that fueled an unprecedented boom of new projects under construction without any tenants even signed in advance. Even though developers added 31.4 million square feet of new industrial properties to the market last year, which is the most ever in a single year, soaring demand drove the vacancy rate to an all-time low. But as Ecker noted, 2023 has been a different story, with rising interest rates cooling off the market and companies reining in their warehouse needs. While developers are on track to add 42 million square feet to the market this year, demand is on pace to be just half of what it was last year, also according to Collier's data. Net absorption, meanwhile, which is a key demand metric that tracks the amount of space leased and occupied compared with the prior period, totaled only 4.1 million square feet during the third quarter, also according to the same data. And that was the lowest quarterly net absorption figure in more than three years. And as Ecker pointed out, next year isn't looking much rosier. Developers are projected to add another 24 million square feet of supply to the market by the end of September, just 37 percent of which has been pre-leased, according to Collier's. Barring an unexpected surge in demand, that means the vacancy rate will likely keep rising for the next several quarters as well. Ecker reported that tenants during the third quarter signed 111 new leases or lease expansions, totaling 5.8 million square feet, according to Collier's. 
That square footage marked the lowest tally for new leasing activity in six years, also according to data from the firm. Through the first nine months of the year, sales of industrial properties in the Chicago area totaled $2.4 billion, down 54 percent from the same period last year. That according to research firm MSCI Real Assets. More than 200 Northwestern University faculty members have signed a faculty senate resolution calling on the school to answer outstanding questions over the financing of its projected $800 million stadium project. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that the resolution, which comes just before Evanston City Council is set to weigh in on the stadium's fate, is the latest turbulence over Northwestern's plans to rebuild its nearly 100-year-old stadium. And drafted by nine Northwestern professors, the resolution raises questions over the project's funding, which so far is only partially covered by part of a $480 million donation from Northwestern mega-donors Patrick and Shirley Ryan, leaving much of the remaining bill to be what was described in the faculty letter as funded by increased Northwestern debt. Dupre noted in reporting that the resolution also raises questions over the school's insistence of relying on summer concerts to help pay for the stadium and its upkeep, writing that, quote, if the future revenue streams fail to materialize, the cost of maintaining an expensive stadium would be backstopped by resources that support the research and teaching missions of the university, including faculty salaries and benefits, thus making Northwestern's faculty effectively investors in this entertainment project. Dupre reported that the proposal calls on the school's chief operating officer to answer 10 questions related to the financial upkeep, funding, and sustainability of the Ryan Field project. And those questions echo ones raised by Evanston's Land Use Commission, which held three meetings over Northwestern Stadium proposals, ultimately voting 7-2 to not to recommend the school's text amendment to add up to six concerts at the new Ryan Field. While Evanston residents and city officials have generally supported the stadium rebuild, a fierce backlash has mounted against the concert's proposal, which has become the school's largest obstacle in landing its desired new football stadium. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.